Welcome to Trashy Divorces, y'all. I'm Alicia. My name is Stacy. Thank you for joining us this week. Uh, it's a little bit of a surprise to us, even. Yeah, we were all ready to record new, fresh, trashy divorces stories for you this week until the chainsaws and the bobcats Ooh. came out in the, how we were, you call it, misty, misty morning light. Yes, we were awakened by the dulcet tones of chainsaws clearing the lot next to ours at our new TDHQ2, which will apparently feature several months of construction. So we had power equipment come to raise the house next door. So alas, it is us bending with the sway of the universe. (laughs) Got to tell you, Stacey, this Mercury retrograde is brutal. It is. It really is. We're going to do some dirty deeds done dirt cheap this week. We have two stories filled with dirty deeds from Patreon that we are pulling out for you. Because we like your ears, and we like that you're here to listen to us, and we don't think your ears are going to like bobcats and chainsaws. No. All right, so Alicia, who do you have this week? I have the dirty deed of the trashiest short story ever written. It is called The Coat Basque, 1965. It is by Truman Capote. This episode is one of the pinnacle ending episodes of the Ladies That Lunch series, and kind of pulls together the final damage Also, with a little bit of a tie to my solo podcast, Done and Done, and the true crime that we are going to talk about the next done day. Uh, How about you, Stacey? I have uh, sort of a, one of the early celebrity lawyers in America. This is a guy named Marvin Mitchelson. We've talked about him a bunch on the podcast. come up here and there. He pioneered the idea of palimony, much to the chagrin of generally wealthy men who have long-term relationships with women they do not marry. Can you say dirty deeds? I mean, he, gosh, what a colorful American figure and sort of a a cautionary tale about life in the lob is. (laughs) Why can't it be everything? It's all of that. Hey, before we start on the episodes, let's give some huge love and thanks to our new patrons this week. These folks are getting early ad-free content, and multiple extra episodes every week. I have a huge magic mirror that I have unpacked somewhere from one of these boxes. Sure. I'm sure it's unpacked, yeah. Thank you so much to Nikki R., Megan D., Jen C., Anne S., and Heather H. Elizabeth V., Dixie B., Layla N., Charlotte W. Thank y'all so much to our new patrons, to our existing patrons, for you coming back and listening to us for another week. We'll be back with all new, fresh, trashy divorces next week for you. Good stories, too. Yeah, really good. I'm disappointed that today worked out the way it did, but I think it, yeah, I think it, I think, I think this was the right choice, but stay tuned for next week. Until then, Stacey, you know what we got to do. What do we got to do? We got to go, go, go. So, Alicia. At long last, we come to the end. It's the swan song, as it it's were. It's the swan song what? of ladies who launch the swans. Because swans are completely silent until that's not true. That's not true. It's a myth. But this is the swan this song is what of we've the been, swans. What we've been building toward, what you a have been li- building a us A little toward. bit. I read Le Cote Basque 1965 a thousand years ago and had no level the depths of bitchiness. Like I read it without knowing who he was writing about and it was really, really bitchy. I'm like, this is the meanest thing I've ever read. But now that I, like all of you, have been introduced to the characters that he's actually talking about, 
it's so bitchy. Hey y'all, welcome to the Swans. We've talked about Babe Paley and Slim Keith and CZ Guest and, oh good lord, Carol made of moonbeams and Breakfast at Tiffany's and Truman all through that. But today, it is the pinnacle. Lakota Basque 1965. This is a story that, yeah, I was going to say literally, but literally I have 8,000 words on my little iPad and I'm probably not going to say them all because we're just going to have a conversation about this with some reference notes. I would like to recommend Capote, a biography by an author named Gerald Clark. It's a really good source to read more. Uh, Gerald Clark does not really pull any punches about Truman. I find him pretty pretty honest in his assessment. And I am going to be sourcing a lot of that book in this story. And I'll put the link in for you in the show notes if you're interested in finding out more about Truman. Hell, we haven't even talked about Mona von Bismarck, who was the generation before the Swans, or Morella Agnelli. Um, there are a few more, but you're going to get the gist today. Okay, I'm so excited. God, y'all, it's everything. Okay. Sorry, it was uh, Morella von Bismarck related to Otto? <laughs> Morella Agnelli Sorry. was married to the Fiat owner of Italy. Okay. And Mona von Bismarck Mona is going to show up in the story, but she was kind of the generation before the swan. She's mm-hmm. like the best dressed lady in the South. Was she I, descended from German nobility, though? I don't think so. I think she married into that. Oh, okay. Name. I think okay. she was originally from a hick town in Arkansas and made herself up very and much ended like up the a German princess. Woman. <laughs> Dreams really do come true. <laughs> okay. So let's set the scene and just remind everybody about where Lakote Bass came from. Truman releases In Cold Blood in 1965. Throws the black and white ball. He's a huge success. And promptly proceeds to quit writing. He is writing the coattails of fame. If he's invited to your society gala, uh, it's going to be a sellout. He's on the yachts and in the pools and just sort of manifesting what he believes is his due Mm -hmm. acclaim of fame. Okay. Truman was a guy who understood himself to be smarter than everyone around him, correct? Yes. Like, he was a very egotistical, self-important kind of guy. Is that... Give give me an hour, and you're going to hate Truman Capote, too, at the end of That's this. That's fair. I'm going to have to He's watch terrible. Philip Seymour Hoffman's um bi- He's just bitchy. He's again. just bitchy and mean, and it's a lot of imago. But let's, let's mm-hmm. talk about how we get to the meanest, bitchiest shittiest shittiest thing that has ever been written in fiction it's really kind of a tour de force i'm not gonna lie there's one scene there's one room it takes place in one setting like there's no it's all narration but god if it's not the bitchiest thing that's ever been in print so at the release of in cold blood Truman's publishers put him on the hook for like, hey, here's a lot of money for your next book because all the prizes and the awards and blah, blah, blah. So by July of 69, the 66 contract that he had negotiated was renegotiated. And now, instead of whatever it was, I don't have it written down, but I have the new amount, which is $750,000 in advance. 
$750,000 in July 1969 money. This is for a trilogy, and he's got four years to write it. It needs to be done January 73. January 73 comes and goes. He doesn't even have book one. Fuck no. Now it's January 1974. And then it was September 1977. There's one more agreement in 1980 that they're going to give Capote a million dollars if you just get us a manuscript in by March 1st, 1981. Nope. Now going back to May of 71, Truman on the Dick Cavett show. He's talking about the book he's going to write. Because right, he's been writing it now for... 15 fucking years. And he explains to Dick Cavett that he is looking at this book as his posthumous novel. Either I'm going to kill it or it's going to kill me. And it does. Kind of. So. Dude, I. Oh, God, it's so bad. uh, It's so bad. So just as a writer, though, I can understand, like, you have this stunning success and then. Like, every blank page has to just feel like failure, the possibility of failing after that. Well, and I have this down. I'm really going to mesh all of this up and I'll, just I'll make it you, conversational. I'll let you tell. I just... Whew. No, I'm, I'm not even going to script just because this story is so much in my head. So, Truman, because he's so much at a loss, he goes back to his notebooks from the late 50s at the time he's writing Breakfast at Tiffany's. And Lacote Basque and the idea he has for the story has eight women in it, and none of the women are the people he really talk about. He talked, Mona von Bismarck is going to be the anchor, and the shitty male character that becomes Babe Paley's husband is based on Avril Harriman in the 1958 version. So with nothing to write, let me go back to those old notebooks and see if I can come up with anything. Well, he does. Good Jesus, Truman, you just should have stopped while you were ahead. So he wants to write this masterpiece called Answered Prayers. Now, he's been known, right, as a short story novella writer. Uh, His first release, uh, Other Voices, Other Rooms, like, you know, it's Breakfast at Tiffany's, like, In Cold Blood was a tour de force, but, like, he he writes smaller, like, but brilliant writer. Oh, God. All right. Truman will go on to tell People Magazine about his book, Answered Prayers, that he's working on. (laughs) It's going to be filled with thinly disguised disguised characters, people he knew. He was going to assassinate them all. His pen, the gun. This is his quote. There's the handle to trigger the barrel and finally the bullet. And when that bullet is fired from the gun, it's going to come out with a speed and power like you've never seen. Wham. Truman's on a lot of drugs. At this point, sounds like Truman does not finish the book, doesn't finish anything to fulfill the contract, as we know, like by 81. But in 1975, he's feeling kind of down about it. And he's like, nope, I'm a viable writer. I will complete a few chapters. And he sells four chapters. Mojave, Unspoiled Monsters, Kate McLeod, and Lakote Basque. Selling these four chapters of this novel in progress. Sells them to Esquire. Great. It is mean in word and spirit. It is shockingly bitchy. It is the meanest American short story ever. Lacote Basque, this one. Um, This one story destroys everything. His reputation, his social standing, his friendship, his desire to write. His swans, as we've talked about for seven weeks, are fucking out. 
done, ruined. His fans, his readers are just appalled. Like, what is wrong with you? Even his supporters are like, what is wrong with you? Truman says when he was young, he wanted to be rich, terribly, terribly rich. My mother, after divorcing, my father married a rich man, but they were upper middle class rich, and that's worse than being poor. There's no taste in middle class rich. You must be either very rich or very poor. There's absolutely no taste in between. I've always known rich people, but I was so aware of not being rich myself. Something wrong with that boy. He destroyed it all, man. So, like, money means a lot to Truman, and he collects oh, yeah, his he's swans. The most and classist guy in the world. Yeah. Their wealth. So, Bay Paley and Slim Keith, Lee Radziwill, CZ Guest, Gloria Guinness. Oh, I forgot about Gloria Guinness. Morella Agnelli. Truman is obsessed with those who have the cash and the power and the influence that that buys, right? And Truman, from an early, like, money, like, makes your, money makes your life better. It excuses you from the terrible behavior that you may have, there are absolutely no rules that you have to follow when you have that kind of money. Carol Mathow, made of moonbeams, I love this quote. He explained to me that when you are a very, very rich girl, you don't marry the same way a real girl marries. You marry the way another person travels in a foreign country. You stay there until you tire of it, and then you go elsewhere. I mean. Truman Capote may not be wrong, at least in many cases. That's a horribly I've got it so bad cold way of looking at it, but Okay, speaking of cold, let's go ahead and let me give you a little bit from the uh, Gerald Clark bio. I love this paragraph. The darling of the gods, a friend had named him in the forties, before he was twenty-two, before he had published his first novel. He was the darling of half of Manhattan as well. The combination of his little boy facade with an acute adult intelligence intrigued more than one high-octane gathering. And after dinner, the ladies in their gowns and jewels deserted their husbands to listen to his funny and sometimes outrageous stories. They adored him, and by the mid-50s, his rapport with the opposite sex had flowered into perfect communication. No Casanova had ever admired lovely women more fervently. He flattered them. He consoled them. He tried to guide their destinies. Pygmalion was his favorite role. And any woman who took his advice, whatever her age or position in life, he looked on as a protege who needed only his word or hand to bring her to perfection. Women delighted him. And he pleasured them in every way but one, the physical act of love. Like Truman adores women until he hates women, right? And there are a lot of beautiful women with style and money lingering around Manhattan. But what's special about the swans that he collects is they all have stories to tell, right? A lot of these swans are not to the manner born. They have all risen up from sometimes very less than humble origin, sometimes from the streets, sometimes from a little bit of money or name or cachet. But all in all, these swans have fought and clawed their way to where they're going. Young, scrappy, and hungry, right? 
kind of like Truman himself. And he likes being in their swan club and they like to gossip as much as Truman does. So he hears their stories. He shares his stories. Like it's not just any ordinary lady who's pretty and wealthy who's going to do it for him. you got to have that um, storytelling panache. you got to know dish. you got to be that connected. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. His swan club thinks that Truman would never sell them out, right? It's marvelous to laugh at others, but we certainly are exempt from your scrutiny and gossip. Okay. Well, there's the added layer. They had to know that he was gay. Oh, yeah. And gave him complete acceptance. Oh, totally. And I'm sure that... He's basking all the mother that he never had. And now he's got every lady who's prettier, better dressed, more money, more mannered. Like, Babe Paley and her sister teach him etiquette, how to decorate a room. These are the four. And he's, you know, he's grown up after Monroeville, Alabama with a little money. But they teach him, like, he's their lover, non-lover. Mm-hmm. He's their child. He, he He's mm-hmm. the pet. He's the pet, right? Good Lord, he's such a dick. He delights in the turbulence. When none exists, he's going to stir the pot and stand back and watch the results. Um, Slim Keith says this about him. It was almost an intellectual solitaire that he played. He would invent something out of whole cloth, an absolute fabrication, and say, did you know that X is having a walkout with Y? And I would say, oh, Truman, for God's sakes, that's ridiculous. And then I'd begin to think about it more, and I wondered. Is that ridiculous? And something usually did come out of his invention. Whether he willed it into being or not, I don't know. But he could cause a lot of trouble. Truman will brag to Slim. I can break up anybody in New York I want to. Like that is, but it's cool if the swans are in his vicious tongue club until it turns on them. Good Lord. Slim goes on. He was such a mercurial, many-colored, many-sided person, like a big mirrored ball with light hitting it at different angles. Hmm. But inside that ball was a really extraordinary mind. He was one of the three or four brightest people I've ever known in my life. His head excited me immensely. Going to lunch with him in a good restaurant was the most fun there was. But the most rewarding thing of all was to sit alone with him after dinner and just let him go. He was an adored friend. I want you to remember that it's Slim Keith that said that going to lunch with him in a good restaurant is the most fun there is. I'm sure that was true, too. I mean, God, I'm thinking of like the Littlefinger character on Game of Thrones. I mean, they're like this is it's this is a personality type that fascinates and that always has. Okay. But it, but it is ultimately deeply destructive. Oh, it's so destructive. <laughs> so he loves all of his swans. He will call Lee Radzewell, dear princess, Carol Mathow made of moonbeams. But Babe Paley is his favorite. Remember that he said about Babe, Mrs. P had only one fault. She was perfect. Otherwise, she was perfect. <laughs> but Babe, the thing... See, and clever quips. I mean, <laughs> oh, what a nightmare. The thing you need to know about Babe, though, is she's kind of icy. 
She's not touchy feely. She's not demonstrative. Well, and you said that with her she, kids. Yeah, you said that she was the one who uniquely never shared her secrets with him. Correct. Oh no, 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 no. Babe did. Babe absolutely did. Okay. Right. Yeah, Babe did. There were a few that were a little tighter lipped, but they still get tranced. But Babe Paley is like ice princess, right? She's not very outwardly affectionate. She's always in competition with Gloria Guinness over who's the best dressed. And they meet Truman and Babe in 1955. And Babe is the ultimate in style. But with Truman, Babe can be authentic. She can let her hair down. She can be a little touchy-feelier. Like Truman's not a man that you have to do anything masculine. Like he's one of the girls. So Babe becomes uh, animated and lively and the ice melts off Babe when she's with, like they really do have, okay. they're BFFs. Well, to Truman, Babe is the bee's knees ultimate. You can't top her. She's a genuine article. He's madly in love with her. I thought she was fantastic. She is one of the two or three great obsessions in my life. She's the only person in my whole life that I liked everything about. I consider her one of the three greatest beauties in the world. The other two being Gloria Guinness and Garbo. He goes on. She was the most important person in my life and I was the most important person in hers. I was her one real friend, the one real relationship she had. We were like lovers. She loved me and I loved her. The only person I was ever truly in love with was her. She once joked, that her analyst said that she loved me more than anyone else, more than Bill or her children, and he thought she should have an affair with me. It was one of those jokes that wasn't actually a joke. He was right. We had perfect rapport. We had an understanding. If I suspected she was feeling bad about something, no matter what time of year it was, I would send her lilies of the valley without any note, and she would do the same for me. She once told me that she bought her funeral plot on Long Island and there was a place for me, because she wanted me to be buried beside her. Hmm. I was her sounding board. I was the only one who really knew her. She always said to me, wait, this is it. There's only one person in the world who could hurt me, really hurt me, and that's you. You could do something. I don't know what that would be, but I know that you're the one person in the world that could ever really, really hurt me. And hurt her, he did. Enter, answered prayers. And one of those short stories, Lakote Basque, 1965, named for the East 55th Avenue gathering spot in Manhattan. It's one of the chicest place to be. One, blah, words are hard. Um, remember Truman carries around his little book for the black and white ball and they're going to lunch every day at Lakote Basque. It's this fancy eatery. If you have a front table, it's a big damn deal. It's, it's ladies who lunch. Mm -hmm. Ladies who lunch go to Lakote Basque. So the whole scene takes place one afternoon when the narrator-ish, right, P.B. Jones, who is Truman Capote, meets his friend, Lady Coolberth, on the street. <sighs> In the narrative of Lakote Basque, Lady Coolberth has been stood up by Wallace Simpson for lunch and asks P.B. Jones... To come in and have lunch with her instead because she has a front table and it is impossible for her to dine alone. Lady Coolberth is American. Big, breezy, peppy broad in her 40s. Grows up in a ranch in the West 
Her current husband is an English knight. Turns out someone else Truman knows has all these same qualities. You know her by her name of Slim Keith. All the same traits. Ranch in the West, current husband, English knight. So, so, there, so there's absolutely no way to figure out who he's talking about. It's impossible. He's such an asshole. He's cleverly hidden. So PB and <laughs> Lady Coolberth. Lady on a cool birth, right? Drink a lot of champagne. They're drinking Cristal. And uh using Lady Coolberth's narrative voice, Truman will write the bitchiest short story in American literature. So Lacote Basque just happens on that day to be packed with all the people. That are going to be annihilated in the story. Babe Paley's there. So is her sister, Betsy Whitney. Lee Radswell is there with her sister, Jacqueline. Gloria Vanderbilt's there with Carol Mathau as well. Truman, in later interviews, whatever, he'll say he's Lady Coolberth. I was her. I gathered all that information. That was my voice talking. It's not about Slim. You're just absolutely wrong. But, dude, you've been talking about how you were going to trash your friends for the last five years, so it's not really wrong. Pants on fire, liar, liar. So cool. Lee Radzewell gets off the easiest. Again, Truman calls her dear princess. Uh, Lady Coolberth, she almost gets a valentine. Lady Coolberth says about Lee Radzewell, if I were a man, I'd fall for Lee myself. She's marvelously made, just like a Tanagra figurine. Jacqueline Lady Coolberth says about her, very photogenic, of course, but the effect is a little unrefined, exaggerated. Together, Jackie and Lee are referred to as a pair of Western geisha girls. This is harsh. That's brutal. Oh, <laughs> this is this is the warm up ride. You're mm-hmm. just climbing the ladder to the uh, slip and slide, babe. Uh, Lady Coolberth will then go on. And tell... Yeah, this is like inside voice stuff that you you, yeah. don't, you don't... There's a lot of crystal champagne. Lady Coolberth, after the Western Geisha Girls, will tell of Lady Coolberth herself being raped as a teenager by Joe Kennedy, saying that she was a guest of Kick Kennedy's one night in the home. And, quote, the old bugger slipped into my bedroom. All those Kennedy men are the same. They're like dogs. They have to pee on every hydrant. Princess Margaret is going to make an appearance as well. Uh, Lady Coolberth says about her, I was about to doze off. She's such a drone about having the misfortune to be stuck with her at a party. Pretty much anybody who's done anything shitty to Truman Capote, he's going to take a swing at. J.D. Salinger, (laughs) who was one of Una Chapman's early beau before Charlie Chaplin, Carol Mathau says to Una, it seemed to me he must be a boy who cries very easily. Because Una had read some of her letters to, okay. Gloria Vanderbilt is made to appear so vacuous and self-absorbed that Gloria cannot recognize her first husband when he stops at the table to say hello to her. Pat DeSico, failed talent agent and Mm -hmm, mobster. mm Mm-hmm. Comes by, he's like, hello, Glory. And she does this very polite thing. And <laughs> he walks away from the table. And Gloria, in the narrative, turns to Carol. is like, who was that? Oh, my God. She's like, baby, you were married to him. 
And Carol kind of consoles her off like, oh, darling, let's not brood. You haven't seen him in almost 20 years. Okay. There's this couple, Josh and Netta Logan, who Truman had not forgiven for trying to stop one of his New Yorker articles back in the 50s. They're talking about a party that the Logans had given and Carol will ask Gloria, how, you know, how was the party? And uh, Gloria says, marvelous if you've never been to a party before. This is pretty bad. Yes. Still just a wind up though. The two main stories, like there's, there's dish. Okay. But one of these directly does involve Dominic Dunn which is why we've talked a little bit about this in Fun With Dunn, and we are going to talk about the two Mrs. Grenvilles in Dunn and Dunn. This is like the favorite, I think, Fun With Dunn you had about the mother-in-law who sticks next to the daughter-in-law. Yes. Okay. Lacote Basque annihilates Anne Woodward because Anne Woodward was going to be one of the focus points in 1958. The murder of her husband, Billy, occurs in 1955. So when Truman goes back to all those original notebooks 20 years later, like, I need something to write about. This is, even in 1965, a decade after the death of Billy Woodward, but it does take a large place in the story. So I'm going to take again this bit from Gerald Clark about the tale of Ann Woodward in the fatal shooting of her husband, Billy. Give you just to remind you of the background. The Woodward killing had intrigued the social world since 1955 when, taking aim in their house in Oyster Bay, Anne Woodward had unloaded a double barreled Churchill shotgun into the smooth and handsome head of her husband Bill. A sportsman whose racing colors, red and white, had been worn by the great thoroughbred Nashua, Bill had been a popular figure in New York society. On the day of his funeral, his clubs had lowered their flags to half mast. Servants all over Manhattan's east side demanded time off to pay their respects. A Long Island grand jury exonerated Trigger Happy Ann, who asserted that she had mistaken him for a prowler. But most of Truman's friends who had heard about Ann's fits of insane rage believed otherwise. You remember that night there was a party given for the Duke and Duchess of Windsor. At a home, there were 50 guests, and Billy got pulled away from the table because he's taking a phone call from his lover, right? Like, we're... Yeah, the details are gone, but yeah. Okay. The details were coming again and done I, and I done. recall that it was like a mm-hmm. large group of society types. And they who... all sang the same note. Right. They're all singing from the same songbook. Every... They were a lovely couple. We never saw them fight. There was no argument. Like, everybody had the same three lines. All right. When she pulls the trigger, Bill had just emerged from the shower... How many burglars, they asked themselves, make their rounds in the nude? Because there was a prowler in Oyster Bay. He'd broken windows. He'd been caught before. So everybody's on heightened alert. But Billy had just gotten back from Arkansas and discovering that Anne had a teenage marriage that she never got divorced from and her father was still alive after she said he was dead. Like, it's terrible. Truman getting back at everybody. Truman's still mad because he met Anne in San Moritz. And Ann Woodward calls Truman Capote a fag. And he, in return, will nickname her Bang Bang, hmm. which sticks around to her death, which will occur three days after the publication of Lacote Basque 1965. She commits death by suicide. Wow. Three days after this is published. That's how bad it is. Wow. Okay. So he was going to make a blah, 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 and the central character. So Anne, West Virginia hillbilly, who becomes a Manhattan call girl, then a gangster's mall, 
finally through luck and while, the wife of one of society's golden boys, Bill Woodward. Good Lord. All right. Elsie Woodward engineers the grand jury. Remember, Anne, instead of being taken to jail or prison, is sent to the hospital for a few days because she's so upset. Blah, blah. Okay. Elsie Woodward lets her get away with it. Her son has been the, you know, victim of a cruel accident. Elsie lets Anne take everything. I need the custody of your two kids. And I will include you in everything from now, but you have nothing to do with your two kids, but I'll stick by you because the scandal of that would have been too great. Right. This was what particularly affronted me is, yeah, like the victim's mother was just like, ooh. She never gives a party again without Anne being invited. Just going to make sure there's no scandal. Oh, it's a shame you murdered my son, but Mm -hmm. boy, we don't want that in the papers. Yeah, her daughter-in-law assassinated her kid, her only son. She's got five other fucking girls. One son, that legacy of the name. I just, okay. I, I just. So back to Lady Coolberth in the story. The one thing I wonder is what everyone wonders when they're alone, just the two of them. What do they talk about? Elsie and Anne, it's just mean. I mean, it's a reasonable question though, isn't it? Yeah, so Coolberth in the story Here's some great quotes. Uh, She's a murderess. The police know that. She describes how the social climbing Woodward targeted her husband. I'm sure it was his first experience with anything less primitive than a belly rub with his prep school roomie. The water was still running. The shower door was riddled with bullets. None of Anne's story was true. More scandalous, says Lady Coolberth. Woodward's mother-in-law pays off the cops in the courts. And that's why Anne Hopkins gets away with murder. Her mother-in-law is a Rhode Island goddess. All true. This is published October 10th. And then we've talked about the reaction. We're going to get into some more of it. But this is where Anne Woodward, three days, I'm sorry, before, because she'd gotten an advanced copy, three days before Lacote Basque hits the newsstands, Anne Woodward will kill herself with cyanide Shit. and leave a note on her don't forget pad. It said, don't forget by the side of her bed. And she wrote Anne Woodward. So tragic. That's the annihilation of Anne Woodward and the death of Anne Woodward. I hope you're happy with yourself, Truman Capote. I want you to go back. Remember, babe saying Truman's the only person who could ever, ever hurt me. Welcome, babe, to pain. The second of Lady Cool. This is Slim Keith. This is Babe Paley's best friend being the nail. Like, to add insult to injury. God, it's terrible. That's only bad story number one. <laughs> I promised you bad story number two. The second of Lady Coolberth's <sighs> cautionary tales is prompted by the sight of the wife of a former New York governor who is also at Lacote Basque. Lady Coolberth says one night at a dinner party, Sidney Dillon conglomerator advisor to presidents found himself sitting next to that lady he had always hankered after her and since both of their spouses were away he invited her back to his pied-a-terre in the pierre hotel where without any difficulty at all he lured her into bed it proved to be a disappointing conquest the woman in question had neglected to warn him that it was the wrong time of the month and she was menstruating or hemorrhaging as Truman grossly exaggerates in his account. When she leaves, the sheets were covered with bloodstains, quote-unquote, the size of Brazil. We've all been there. (laughs) 
Well, expecting his wife, Sidney Dillon, to come home the next morning before the hotel maid comes to make up the bed, Sidney Dillon struggles frantically to expunge the evidence of his infidelity, scrubbing the crimson sheets in the bathtub with the only soap in hand, a bar of Guerlain's Florida Alps. And there he was, related Lady Coolberth, the powerful Mr. Dillon, down on his knees, flogging away like a Spanish peasant at the side of a stream. Yikes. Yikes. The sheets finally come clean, and after baking them in the apartment's tiny oven, he makes up the bed and crawls under the covers for a warm but somewhat soggy sleep. He's so exhausted he does not hear his wife come and go, leaving an affectionate message on the bureau. Darling, you were sleeping so soundly and sweetly, I tiptoed in and changed and have gone on to Greenwich. Hurry home. There's no plot. The only unifying element is a tone of profound disenchantment. Truman has pulled off one of the most difficult tricks in fiction, which is fashioning a seamless narrative out of disparate characters and unrelated deeds. All right. Now, in the first version, this Dylan character was supposed to be based on Avril Harriman. And the woman that he had been in bed with was his mistress, not someone he had lured home for the night. But by 19, early 70s, when he's writing this, Bill Paley had replaced Avril Harriman as the inspiration for right. this character. It's the infidelitous inspiration. Right. So but... Sidney Dillon is now no longer like Harriman, a wasp patrician. He's now a rich and attractive Jew who yearned to be a wasp patrician. He wanted to go to bed with the former governor's wife, not because she was appealing. In fact, according to the narrative, she looked as if she wore tweed brassiers and played a lot of golf. But he wants to go to bed with her because she's a symbol of what he most desires. Okay. <laughs> it was simply, this is Lady Coolberth. It was simply that for Dill, she was the most living incorporation of everything denied him, forbidden to him as a Jew, no matter how beguiling and rich he may be. The Racket Club, Le Jockey, the Lynx, Whites, all those places he would never sit down to a table of backgammon and all those golf courses where he would never sink a putt. Conversely, in the narrative, the only reason the former governor's wife goes to bed with him is so she could humiliate him with those bloody sheets. It's her way of putting Sidney Dillon, the character, in his place. Lady Coolberth says she had mocked him and punished him for his Jewish presumption. Terrible. Now, Sidney Dillon doesn't look or act like Bill. There aren't any obvious hints, but in a Ramona Clay, right? Those who know Truman and the Paleys, it is crystal clear that Bill is the target of this. The first clue is his description of Dillon's deceived wife, Cleo, the most beautiful creature alive, according to Lady Coolberth. Truman had only employed language in the world like that to describe one person. And that's big mama, right? Period. End of story. Oh God. The second clue is Truman's emphasis on Dylan's hungering for wasp gentility. Truman's convinced that Bill Paley shares that appetite as well. Yikes. Through words, perhaps this is Gerald Clark's assumption. He liked to think he was hitting perhaps the only vulnerable spot possessed by a man of such monarchial self-confidence his sensitivity about being a Jew. The shittier thing about this is that Truman wants Bill to know that he's being ridiculed, right? There's no reason to put that in. 
you got Anne Woodward, you got a lot of dish. It's one chapter in a collected book. Like that's just pointedly, pointedly cruel. There's no reason for the anecdote otherwise, right? And Truman tries to convince himself that none of the swans are, they're not even going to know it's them, right? Yeah. (laughs) They're too dumb. They won't know who they are. And as he is sitting in Gloria Vanderbilt's pool in Southampton, she and Wyatt Cooper are away in Europe. Truman's friend has read the manuscript and he's like, Truman, they're not going to like this. Truman's like, they're too dumb. They won't know who they are. But they did know. Like his brain really broke after in cold, in cold blood. Yeah, it really did. When Lacote Basque reaches the stands in mid-October, I, before it <sighs> appears, Anne Woodward, death by suicide. What bothered Anne most, said Elsie Woodward, which she's just going to tell her friend, was not Truman's dredging up of the sordid past, but her suggestion that her marriage to poor Bill had been bigamous. Like, nobody regrets Anne's death. Like, the feeling was there that, like, justice has been served at last. But everybody's angry by the embarrassment Truman had caused to the 92-year-old Elsie Woodward, who had spent 20 years trying to make everyone forget that the scandal ever happened. And now, in just a few paragraphs, all of that is gone. So we talked about it in Babe and Slim like, and if you want to go back and listen to those episodes now with the reaction to this, because remember, and within hours of advanced copies and it hitting the newsstands, oh, like I'm phones sure. are ringing all over I'm Manhattan. Sure, yeah. So Babe asks Slim, like, who do you think Sidney Dillon is? He's like, do you think it's Bill? And Slim's like, no, I don't. But everybody knows that it's Bill because Truman had told Slim months before. Oh, God, it's just all bad. Truman, <laughs> it's just bad. Um, Slim's mad because she's Lady Coolbirth, right? When you read it, th- there's my voice, my armature, <laughs> my everything. She looks like me. She talks like me. She is me, a mirror image of me. I was absolutely undone when I read it. Staggered that he could be sitting across from me at a table and then go home and write down everything I'd said. I'd adored him and I was so appalled by the use of friendship and my own bad judgment. Uh, Liz Smith, the columnist. Sure. Never have you heard such gnashing of teeth, such cries for revenge, such shouts of betrayal and screams of outrage. The Logans, who had the shittiest party that has ever happened in Manhattan. That dirty little toad is never coming to my parties again. Gloria Vanderbilt uh, vowed that if she ever saw Truman Capote again, she would spit at him. After all, explained her husband, Wyatt Cooper, they've known each other a long time. It's not that a secret has been betrayed. It's a trust has been betrayed. Yeah. Somerset mom will say it's very hard to be a gentleman and a writer. (laughs) And in the end, Truman (laughs) chooses to be a writer. He breaks all the rules and he is punished. Where it had been build Truman up, build Truman up, invite it. Truman is now... And oh, out, persona non grata. Done. How, how could he be otherwise? A- mm-hmm. Overnight, doors are slammed in his face. Invitations retracted. He is now a recluse. Seezy guest, who had not been made fun of, <laughs> is the only person who really talks to him. Carol, Mathau, she didn't come off too badly in that, but it's bad. So like where Truman had 
had the secret door access to the private lives of all these people. Now he's a cad. He's a traitor. He's a sellout. Well, that's the thing. He made money. off. Like, he sold this. Mm -hmm. This wasn't him journaling his complaints and then somebody, you know, mm -hmm. and then a high school classmate steals it and puts it in the, you know, like, no, this he sold this to Esquire. Well, remember he calls Babe and Babe is dying at this point. Like she is suffering from a fatal illness and Bill answers and he's like, yeah, we're not going to, you know, fuck off. And Truman's just so confused, but they know I'm a writer. I don't understand it. He's shocked. He's surprised. Like, what? I I don't get it. Um, He will telephone Slim to make up. And, you know, I thought it would make you laugh. Oh, God. It didn't. Uh, it It's terrible. Oh, this is the best one. Truman, still wanting to, like, get back in Slim's good graces, sends her a cable in Australia where she's vacationing at the end of that year. Oh, Merry Christmas, Big Mama. Slim, he calls Big Mama. I've decided to forgive you, love Truman. I've decided to forgive you. How's that go? Yeah, not good. None of them ever talked to him again. Uh, to Babe, Truman will write two letters. She never replies. Consumed with anger. Babe and Slim, not making peace. A lot of them don't make peace. Truman just doesn't know that I didn't mean to hurt anybody. I didn't know the story would make such a fuss. That's... Such gaslighting right there. That is a man who always desired a fuss. Well, like he's always desired a fuss and like, he created a fuss and now he's know? upset at the consequences of his own fuss. My gosh. I don't even know how long I've talked. That's essentially yeah. Lakote Basque, the nastiest, meaniest, meaniest. Yeah, it's my new word today. Meaniest. Bitchiest, shittiest short story ever written in American history. You hate Truman even more now, don't you? I mean, I... The You're glad I told you about the made of moonbeams thing. It's like the nicest thing he's ever done. Whoosh! Connections. Platinum. All right, well, we're out of here. There it is. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Y'all are awesome. Enjoy your Tuesday. We'll be back with spiderwebs tomorrow. You have a thing. I have a thing. Swans are very trashy. All the things. Oh, the swans. We're going to rest you for now, swans. You can go ahead and sing all you want in your swan song, even though I think we'll probably come back for a I'm, few more. I'm sure there are more stories. A here. few more associated stories at some point in the future. Friends, please, please, please wash your hands. Oh, keep those hands washed. We're, keep, the curve is good. Keep doing what we're doing. Keep doing what you're doing. We may finally crush this thing. That's it. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Keep it trashy. Ready to change up your dinner routine without hurting your bank account's feelings? Every Plate is America's best value meal kit. It's home cooking that beats takeout and delivery. A meal from every plate costs about as much as a cup of coffee. The menu features 14 different recipes a week that come together in about 30 minutes. Ingredients are pre-portioned so you can make quick work of meal prep without wandering the grocery store aisles and you don't have to wonder whether that leftover half cucumber should go back in the fridge. I took a turn in our new kitchen and cooked bacony chicken linguine this week. Chicken bacon noodles and this incredible herbed butter, cream cheese, and Parmesan sauce 
What's not to love? There are a lot of meal kit services out there, but every plate squeezes all the deliciousness in at a price point that won't give you heartburn. You can get started with every plate for just $1.99 per meal, plus an additional 20% off another two weeks by going to everyplate.com and entering code TRASHY199. That's $1.99 per meal, plus an additional 20% off another two weeks by visiting everyplate.com and entering code TRASHY199. Hi, everybody. I'm Katie Segal. And I'm Kurt Sutter. And welcome to our new podcast called Pi, People, Influences, and Experiences. Yes, it's sort of the uh, get to know you at a deeper level, the who, what, when, where, and why you are rather than what it is you do. Absolutely. We're not going to talk too much about what people do. We just want to know about their families, where they come from, you know, what shapes their parenting if they have kids, what shapes their marriages if they're married. We just want to be really nosy. We want to get in there. A deep dive into nature and nurture. And we started it because there are a lot of people that we don't know that we are curious about. Right. And I have no friends, so for me, it's, you know... Try like, to get them out of the house. Listen to it on whatever you listen to. <laughs> Podcasts on yeah, podcast homecast your, 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 your podcasting apparatus. Watch it on the YouTube. He's aging himself. Summer reading season is upon us. Have you ever considered how your personal finances would read as a literary genre? Would it be a sweet romance with a happy ending? or a thriller you could only read during the day. The clever ladies at the Oak Tree Group want to help you write your most compelling financial story. These three holistic planners have 77 years of combined experience helping people navigate all kinds of financial plot twists and turns. They can help you with a wide breadth of financial strategies. Check out their website, www.theoaktreegroup.net and see the experience and areas of expertise these women bring to the people they serve. The Oak Tree Group is offering our listeners a free one-hour consultation on your financial script. See their website, www.theoaktreegroup.net, for additional contact details. Spider butts. Spider butts. Did not have it in there. Spider butts today. I've got. Here come the spider butts. I think I've got a spider. Actually, tell me. I have. I have entitled my story today. Pal around and find out. Fantastic. The life and times of Marvin Mitchelson. Great. This was the lawyer who invented the concept of palimony. Yeah, we've in the sixties. Super famous on trashy divorces. We've super famous. About him a he's bunch. come up a lot. He's been dead for fifteen years, so I, I don't think like the height of his fame was in the late seventies, I think. And so, you know, it's well, a, he bought that big jewel for Joan Collins at Wallace's auction. I strongly encourage you to drop in with details like that because I did not include that. But you, I no, know he's you trashy. I'm so excited to hear this story. Tell okay. me about this is sort of the just spider. His background so that we can then springboard into cases that grew out of his work like Martina Navratilova and Judy, Judy Nelson. Nelson. Yeah, I was like, how do I So it, I decided I needed to talk to the granddaddy of Palamony before. Perfect. Talk about the granddaddy of Palamony. Talk about it. God. Quit pa- your yapping. Pal around and find out. Mm. 
All right. So one of the most important innovations in 20th century society was that as the power imbalance between men and women began to diminish, divorce became more common. It makes sense. As the workplace opened up for women, they could more easily opt out of unhappy marriages. Right. They could also just say no when it came to marriage in the first place. I don't need you anyway, sucker. Which eventually led to another innovation in American marriage and divorce. Divorce-like legal suits following the breakup of people who lived together but weren't married. The first so-called palimony suit, or at least the first such to carry that little portmanteau, is that how that's pronounced? Sure. Anyway, of a name, was filed in 1977 by divorce lawyer to the stars, Marvin Mitchelson. (sighs) Marvin. Who has come up a number of times on Trashy Divorces and here on Patreon. I think mostly here on Patreon. He's... He's come up a lot here on Patreon. Oh, yeah, for sure. Today, we're going to talk about the man, the myth, the trash can, the The spider, the felon, the spider, (laughs) Marvin Mitchelson. Marvin Mitchelson was born May 7th, 1928. Uh, Taurus, He was a Taurus. Mm -hmm. He was the youngest of three children born to Russian immigrant parents. They were pretty poor. It was the Depression era, so most people were. But uh, Marvin and his siblings grew up in Detroit until the family relocated to sunny Los Angeles. Like everybody else in America. When he was a young man in high school. I mean, looking for something steady. I mean, by that point, the the depression And then Marvin gets a Hollywood movie contract. (laughs) His first contract paid $18 a week with Warner Brothers, but through the B-movie division, he worked his way up. Oh, God. No, he didn't. All right, so he's a high school student. Um, graduates. He does a stint in the Navy. This miraculously threaded the needle between World War II and the Korean conflict. Like, If he had been three years older, three years younger, he would have seen, potentially, he would have seen actual war. He did not. Wow. Relatively calm. I mean, he's a lucky guy. This is like, his luck does run out, but he, he spent a lot of his life being very, very lucky. Okay. After that, he goes to UCLA. Gets his BA, goes ahead and gets his JD from Southwestern University School of Law. Took him a couple of tries to pass that bar exam, but the bar's not easy. He it's it's never been easy. He was admitted to the bar in June of 1957. Great, I guess had become a lawyer before that. And by 1963, he was arguing a case in front of the United States Supreme Court. Holy fuck! Mm -hmm. So Douglas v. California, a case that he won, I might add, is a landmark ruling that held that criminal defendants who cannot afford a lawyer have to be provided one anyway. Kind of a big deal. Kind of a big Uh deal. It's actually a huge deal. And this is the type of footnote in, you know, legal textbooks that any lawyer would dream of. But this is not what makes Marvin Mitchelson famous and certainly not what makes him the subject of scandal. His status as a divorce lawyer to the stars or to their spouses was already on the rise. In 1962, actress Pamela Mason tired of her husband, actor James Mason's, infidelity Hmm. and decided to divorce him. By all accounts, the Mason marriage, which began as an affair itself during her first marriage and was- Tell us surprise. I know. And was 22 years old by the time Pamela and James split up, had featured infidelity by both spouses for many, many years. Didn't matter. By the time Marvin Mitchelson was done with James Mason, his client walked with more than a million dollars, which would be $8.2 million today. Wow. And the press celebrated America's first million-dollar divorce. It almost certainly was not, but there you go. You got to have a headline. It's like we have a crime of the century every decade. Yeah. Right? Come on. Come on. Yeah. Okay. 
Okay. Once in a century pandemics, every right on, on cue, <laughs> clockwork. Okay. 1970. Actor Lee Marvin ended a long-running relationship with a lounge singer whom he had lived with for six years. Sounds like he did it badly. He told her to move out because he wanted to marry someone else. And (laughs) (laughs) Michelle Troila, deciding that she was not going to be done like that, called Marvin Mitchelson. Hey, you got any more than $1 million settlements (laughs) laying around, man? (laughs) The process was not speedy, but in 1976, the Supreme Court of California ruled that the shifting landscape of relationships in the state of California required some rethinking about property rights in the aftermath of, you know, long-term non-marital relationships. This really does, I mean, this does not seem unreasonable to me. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Part of the purpose of divorce law at all is to ensure... Again, you know, typically women have not had the earning power or the wealth Mm -hmm. that, you know, men have had. And so up until very recently, a divorce could leave a woman and often minor children completely destitute. We've seen it happen. Just very, very bad. And so, yeah, like American divorce law really has just grown up around the idea that what should happen is that at least for some period of time, the, the poorer of the spouses should have some assistance to get on their feet and be able to move forward. Like, right. So this isn't weird to me that this happened or that even it happened in the 70s. Like that's right on time. Good work there. I digress. Michelle's palimony suit, Marvin Mitchelson described the concept as marriage with no rings attached. Mm. He really was a flamboyant guy. He yeah. loved He loved the spotlight. This palimony suit could go forward. In the end, Michelle received no money from Lee Marvin, but the case set a precedent that continues to hold today. Fun fact, after all of this, Michelle Troila and actor Dick Van Dyke lived together from 1976 until her death in 2009. Interesting. But never married. (laughs) As far as I know, they never married. So that's... mm -hmm. All right. So by now, Marvin Mitchelson was a hot commodity for celebrities wanting representation that was as high quality as it was outrageous. He knew all the reporters who hung out at the L.A. County Courthouse, and he would dazzle them with news items that were flattering to his clients or unflattering to the other side. But like, again, this kind of early playing the refs thing, like he just made himself available to all these junior reporters who wanted a byline in the paper and told them. Stories that simply had to be printed. Like an editor was, it was catnip for the media. He, he was just playing. He, anyway, he set the tone. We're going to see this with plenty more celebrity lawyers down the road. He repped Bianca Jagger in her effort to separate Mick Jagger from half of his $25 million fortune. Yeah. It wasn't super successful, if I recall. I know you told that story. She got some money, but I don't. She definitely got something. I don't remember the amount, though. Okay. Uh, wives of Groucho Marx and Bob Dylan. Um, Sarah Dylan walked with $12.5 million. Good on Sarah Dylan. Mm-hmm. In 1979, the Washington Post profiled him, bubbly and exuberant in a 5,000-square-foot home, driving around in a two-tone Rolls Royce. I think at one point he owned four of them. Wow. He didn't mind a question about his critics describing him as a publicity monger, saying the law, quote, has always been a referral business. You can't advertise. Publicity is good for business. And there's no question about it. The Marvin case, the uh, Lee Marvin, Michelle Marvin, the Marvin case has exposed me personally more than the collective cases I've had. It's on the front page in Tokyo, Germany, and Italy. And the Post notes, 
he knows from his newspaper clipping service, because this was pre-internet and you had to pay a service to monitor. It's so funny. Yeah. Well, marketing, right? Like this is, he yeah. was in the right place at the right time to to blend kind of outrageous legal conduct with outrageous marketing savvy. And it, you know, made him quite rich. Here's how the LA Times described his way over the top office in the late 80s. Mitchelson's $12,000 a month Century City offices decorated with oversized velvet upholstered furniture, (laughs) dark wood floors and doors inlaid with stained glass succeed in being suitably somber, redolent of -of turn-of-the-century splendor, and not a little grandiose. Mitchelson's personal office has a panoramic view of the Los Angeles Country Club and adjoins a kitchen and a law library. Wow. His much photographed bathroom, where he once <laughs> where he once posed for television cameras grinning from the bubble bath in his spa, nope. is covered with quasi-erotic wallpaper. Oh, Jesus. Standing next to the door is a cutout of Mitchelson client Joan Collins. Propped along the bathtub's tiled edge are framed photographs of glamorous women, including Marcella, his wife of 27 years, and a bath pillow bearing the likeness of his mother. Mm. I'm still (laughs) trying to process what quasi-pornographic wallpaper Quasi-erotic? Yeah, sorry. Quasi-erotic wallpaper. Maybe it's like the ISIS flag, but made of butt plugs. Good lord. From Pride a few years ago. Yeah. That confused CNN. Okay. In his office, a backlighted reproduction of Botticelli's Birth of Venus is set into the ceiling and stares down at the reports of Mitchelson's victories framed on the wall. Oh, my God. Shake's wife wins 81 million, reads one headline. Other triumphs are documented in a five-inch thick leather scrapbook crammed with news clippings and photographs of Mitchelson with his celebrated clients. He's Dominic Dunn. Yeah, a little bit. He collects everything that's written about him. Posted about, like, mm-hmm. yeah. Pa- wow. Pamela Mason, Soraya Khashoggi, I ho- I, uh, anyway, Adnan Khashoggi's wife and yeah. probably the aunt of Khashoggi who was murdered a few years ago. Anyway, ex-wife, uh, yes, ex-wife of jet-setting arms dealer Adnan Khashoggi, Bob Dylan's ex-wife, Sarah, Sonny Bono, Connie Stevens, Roxanne Pulitzer. Oh, that's right. He did represent Roxanne. Mm-hmm. Rock Hudson's boyfriend, Mark Christian, mm-hmm. and, of course, the woman whose case created the word palimony, Michelle Troila Marvin. On the couch across from his desk is a throw pillow embroidered with the words, Old lawyers never die, they just lose their appeal. Womp womp. That's funny. <laughs> okay. All right. So that, that was the LA Times. Back to, back to, back to me here. His client list was enormous. Um, Also, I I hope this doesn't repeat. This also included One Side or the Other in Divorces by Robert De Niro, Sylvester Stallone, Zsa Zsa Gabor, Mel Torme, Carl Sagan, and William Shatner. He repped Shatner's wife. Marvin Mitchelson once served divorce papers to Marlon Brando by helicopter. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. Just swooped on in to wherever Brando was to serve him. It was an extremely lucrative career, and in the late 70s, at the peak of his fame, he owned a 38-room mansion in Beverly Hills, the aforementioned four Rolls Royces. He had a guest-starring spot on an episode of Golden Girls, where he, I think, tried to get Dorothy to sign a prenup before she and Frank Zaborski, whatever. Oh, I... Okay. I'm with you. Yeah, I looked this up a few days ago, and anyway, Dorothy 
rejected that idea and they did not good for dorothy yeah dorothy's wiser than you think hell yeah so yeah marvin just delighted in his own celebrity status it was his favorite thing being famous and rich and who like that makes perfect sense One hazard of the practice of law, from my non-lawyer perspective, is that when you're an expert on the law, you come to realize that when things are properly couched, there's very little that's actually illegal. True that. Like, if you can paint the picture the right way, nothing's actually illegal. It's really, like, or maybe they're illegal, but they're not indefensible. In any case, thoughtful lawyers can be maddeningly vague, particularly about hypotheticals, because... I mean, it's weird. I listen to a lot of legal podcasts and yeah, lawyers, very rarely, there's nothing black and white in a lawyer's professional purview. Like it's very... No, it's all, it's all gray. It's all gray. Uh It's all like subject to circumstance and what's the situation here. On Tuesday, if it's raining (laughs) and your wife has forgotten to shine your shoes. (laughs) All right. So Mitchelson certainly went in that direction of sort of the nihilistic... (laughs) everything goes kind of thing. In 1988, the California Bar Association accused him of malfeasance. Oh, hell. Overcharging clients for shoddy work. In 1993, his law license was suspended after he was convicted of tax evasion. What? It's not legal if you, it's not illegal if, you know, it's Tuesday and it's raining and my wife didn't shine my shit. He fought this for several years, but was finally imprisoned for two years as well as bankrupted. Oh my God. He was also accused of rape by at least two women. No! But there was just a lack of evidence. It was the, I think I had the time frame on that. He sounds um, terrible. It's problematic. It's problematic. problematic. There's problematic stuff. And I mean, it's not like DAs in this era were like, oh, let's definitely take seriously a claim by a woman that she was sexually assaulted. Right. <laughs> definitely. All right. So those were never prosecuted. At the outset of these legal troubles, the LA Times wrote up a sort of celebration of his life is like a quintessential character of the scene out there, the legal scene, the celebrity scene, the whatever, the just the scene. He was really, he was a mover and shaker in Hollywood without being part of that industry. It's really interesting. This writing is by Anne-Louise Bardock, October 9, 1988, LA Times. The scene was Stefanino's on Sunset, which was the place to have dinner and be seen in Los Angeles in 1970. Steve McQueen, Don Rickles, and Van Heflin were there that night. Oh, wow. And so was Marvin Mitchelson, the attorney who had established himself as Hollywood's premier divorce lawyer when he scored $2 million for Pamela Mason in 1964. I wonder if I got my... Looks like there are different numbers in play here. There are always different numbers in play. Mitchelson was sitting at a table with an aspiring female newscaster. He was head over heels about this young woman, according to numerous sources, who also thought that Mitchelson and his wife, Marcella, had an arrangement of sorts. However, on this particular night, it became clear that there was a misunderstanding concerning that arrangement as Marcella Mitchelson came flying through the doors of the restaurant. No! Nikki Blair, then owner of Stefanino's, remembers Marcella storming over to the table where she announced the obvious to the young woman. You're sitting with my husband, she bellowed. Whereupon she snatched the Rolls-Royce keys off the table and grabbed a bowl of Caesar salad, dumping it. (laughs) I'm a little peckish. I can eat. (laughs) A little nauseous. Dumping it over her rival's head, but not before tearing (laughs) off the woman's hairpiece and throwing it in her husband's plate of linguine. Blair and several... This is an 
adjective-rich story between quasi-erotic wallpaper in this dinnertime scene. Blair and several waiters ran to the table and struggled to usher the raucous threesome out of the restaurant. Finally, they were pushed out the door. Back at their tables, all of Hollywood was a Twitter, and the next day the whole affair made the trades. Oh, that crazy, wild Marvin, so indiscreet but so charming. For Marvin Mitchelson, the memory of that evening brings laughter and some embarrassment, but... But no denials. <laughs> After all, that's who he is. A lovable bad boy who, in his own words, can't say no. Oh, my God. After the laughter subsides, he sighs, perhaps for those good old days when people were more indulgent, more forgiving. Fuck. So, again, I mean, just after this, he embarks on this multi-year thing that lands him in prison for two years. In spite of the legal setbacks that marked the 1990s for him, Marvin Mitchelson would not be deterred. I'm sure you're surprised to hear that. I'm super surprised. There was, yeah, there was no taming him when he came out of Lompoc. Wow. <laughs> okay. This is my favorite thing in the world. He comes out of two years in federal prison. Okay. And he convinces the State Bar of California to give him his law license uh-uh. back. And they do. That is some smooth they, talking. Right? Yeah, that's some smooth talking. Gentlemen, I think you'll agree that if you frame it right, nothing is really illegal. So what have I even done? Should be able to practice. So I should get my license back. So he went back to work as a lawyer. And like a little lower profile, a little more disgraced. A little more informed consent happening among his client base. But... You know, he continued this even as he battled cancer in the 2000s, like in his 70s. This would, in the end, kill him in September of 2004 at the Mm. age of 76. But his contributions to the modern legal framework of marriage and almost marriage will continue to resonate. Legal defense. That's arguing Supreme Court that we need to provide a lawyer for. That's almost bigger than his divorce accomplishments, although I... Certainly appreciate those as well. Sure. Yeah, it seems like he started off in a great direction and then was like, ooh, fame, money, flash, Hollywood. Hollywood. Woo. It'll get you. Yeah. That's how they get you. That is- uh, Fame, money, cats. This is a spider in our Spider Butts series because like, I mean, many, 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 many palimony style suits obviously blanket the world these days. Some of them are quite prominent, and I've been doing a lot of research on the Martina Judith Nelson thing. So, yeah. Anyway, there is a Trashy Divorces all-star, Marvin Mitchelson. That is awesome. King of the spider butts. He really should be on your bingo card somewhere, because he's been involved in so many divorces that we have talked about. Mm -hmm. And I hear from that list that he's going to be involved in lots more that we're going to. Yeah. He is sort of the... Yeah. Uh, poster child of trashy divorces law. He's yeah. We need we we He's need a godfather. Little... Godfather of trashy divorce law. I feel like the rape allegations mean that I'm not going to go look for um like an illuminated candle of Marvin no. Mitchelson. But, <laughs> no, um, he's no hero. But he's not what you want your inner avatar to be. Certainly, uh, if you squint right and ignore a couple things, he is a shining. Um, <laughs> depending on what light you look at it in marker of kind of where a segment of the law profession got to in the excess of the 60s and 70s well so, done stacy thanks that was great i enjoyed that hey we all need some spider butts i'm gonna be thinking about hair pieces and linguini hell yeah all day now 
Y'all, thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed that. Hey, wash your hands. Oh my gosh, so much hand washing. Mm -hmm. And uh, go forth and be sassy. Go forth and be awesome. Keep your heart trashy. Oh my God, so sassy trashy. (laughs) Bye. those hearts. Bye, everyone. Have a great day, y'all. Bye. And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us, Stacey and Alicia, with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V. Smith at carbonmade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram and definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio. You can contact us at trashydivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at trashydivorces.com. If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at patreon.com slash trashydivorces. Interested in some Trashy Divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly slash trashy gear. Want to advertise with us? Reach out to sales at advertisecast.com for more information. And last but not least, come play with us on social media. I keep most of our Trashy Divorces Instagram hopping. Stacy and I share it up over on Facebook, including our Trashy Divorces podcast discussion group. Come join us over there and thanks again everybody for listening. Keep it trashy y'all.